Well, good afternoon to you. This is Alan Seymour here, your host on the future of sport. This will be episode 33 here on the All In Sports Talk platform. Delighted today, special guest from the world of sports journalism. Delighted to introduce John Dillon from the London Evening Standard. John, tell us a little bit about how you got into sports journalism. Well, it's a very uh, old-fashioned, almost Dickensian route, actually. Um, what am I now? I'm 54, and I'm my 40th year in Fleet Street, believe it or not. Wow. And the reason for that is that, um, along with several other uh, well-known uh, national newspaper uh, sports journalists, I got my entry into the industry via an agency um, called Haters, yep. uh, which was based on the fourth floor of a sort of rackety old um, Dickensian-looking building in Gough Square, just off of Fleet Street. Um, in fact, just opposite was Dr. Johnson's house, so um, yeah. it's a sort of a, a little cobblestone square which uh, my mind's probably playing tricks on me now. Um, <laughs> gas lamps in it, lighting it rather than uh, normal street lights. But it's a real, a real slice of old London, uh, which is still there. Yeah. Uh, the haters' office was up um, four flights of stairs, uh, past an old grandfather clock, um, into this sort of smoky, uh, very old-fashioned. Um, Sort of want it to be a sort of throwback sort of place now, but 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 but, but wasn't there. What well, what haters did? Um, basically, they were run by an old Daily Telegraph luminary, Red Hater, um, and they provided all sorts of features and coverage for the national newspapers. And in particular, um, they provided um, a a sort of results service, um, stuff like. Um, Public schools football, public schools rugby, yep. and papers like the Telegraph and the Times, uh, and uh, then club rugby and club uh, sort of non-league football uh, on a Saturday. Uh, and people would basically go into the bar, uh, you know, at the old Fartonians or whatever you want to call them, and um, phone in their results. Um, and myself and some other young pups would be in there scribbling them down on uh, different coloured pieces of paper for. Uh, each, uh, you know, whether it was club rugby or schools rugby or whatever, um, they, they would then be collated, and then we'd go off and sort of run messenger rounds on, around Fleet Street um, on a Saturday and Sunday night and in midweek sometimes, um, delivering these results. You know, the, the Telegraph were particularly interested in stuff like, uh, you know, public schools yeah. rugby and that, as you can imagine. Um, so there was I, uh, myself, and uh, the 14-year-old Martin Samuel and Rob Shepherd. Uh, People like that, all, uh, all, all, all doing, it was all getting an immersion into Fleet Street life while we were still at school. And at the same time, we also had uh, jobs where Reg Hater supplied telephones for all the dailies and yeah. all the London football fans. And um, we had this sort of perfect Saturday afternoon job where it was our job to go and plug in all the phones, help phone some of the copy, and then put them all away again afterwards. Um, John, John, can I just, sorry to interject here, but I just want really to pause here because I know my listeners, we know where we are in the sports world. And as this 
in, uh, interview and conversation more than an interview develops uh, today as we converse here. I know some of the interesting things we're going to talk about, how the sports business and the sports journalistic world has changed. But I just want to... I want to really focus on this because sports journalism, almost the nostalgic, the traditional, you mentioned almost the kind of public school. And I remember I'm a little bit older than you, you know, always looking for the sports results from an amateur league I played in or from university sport or some of those things. Do you think we've lost something in the modern idiom of the way sports journalism is? Sports journalism is? against what you're portraying here, John? Uh, well, I mean, I guess yes and no, because, you know, we all like the feel of uh, newsprints between our hands and that, but, uh, you know, non-league, uh, what, club rugby, club football, non-league football, their results and reports and stuff are instantly available online. You know, Correct, you know, something yep. like the, the Islingham League will have its own, own website now, and, they, you know, they've got the results and stuff out, you know, and whatever, however nostalgic I might be for, for old Fleet Street, you know, um, you know, supporters of, of Big Way Town or whatever can sit in the bar after their team have played and instantly um, find out how all their rivals got on, you know, within minutes, I would imagine, of, uh, of their Saturday afternoon game finishing. So, you know, I mean, you can't deny that that's progress. Um, progress often loses a bit of... Um, yeah. Maybe something else, John, I was really trying to also pick up on is, you know, this idea in those days, yes, people gave you a phone or you were sat, you know, collectively and results, which was probably the, the kind of thing that held everything together for you sports journalists, maybe at that time. But you also make a good reference to the fact that you got out there and asked questions and did your own investigations, your own research, your own kind of finding the story, and then probably reported on them rather than just state the facts. Do you have a, a particular perspective on maybe what I'm suggesting there, John? I mean, I think it's very true that um, a lot of uh, young recruits into not just sports journalism but all journalism now are sort of... Um, they're basically working in factories. They're, yeah. they're sitting within the office uh, of whichever publication or organisation they work for, and they're trawling the internet and they're rewriting stuff from the internet uh, that other websites have picked up or whatever. Um, and there's there's a hell of a lot of them. They're not getting out and really doing any reporting. Okay. But that's not true about everybody. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, there are young people coming through at places like the Daily Mail. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they make a point of getting them out and about. Yeah? But the vast majority, I think, particularly of, uh, of people who go through journalism courses and stuff, are finding themselves just rewriting transfer rumours from a Spanish newspaper or, or picking up on a funny picture uh, from an Italian newspaper or whatever and just sitting there and rewriting it and, and putting it out online for their own publication without ever leaving the office and therefore without ever immersing themselves in, you know, with, with people and talking to people and, and learning the real arts of reporting. What was your next step after haters, John? Just kind of chart or kind of uh, synchronise some of the steps you took from there onwards in your career? Well, I then went, uh, well, I got a job on a local newspaper, the Hackney Gazette in okay. London. Um, and uh, I, I carried on working for haters during that time and uh, I carried on I was a news reporter at the Hackney Gazette, uh, 
and so that left my weekends free, so I was able to carry on working for yeah. haters, which kept me involved. Uh, and eventually I started, you know, clearly, you know, Reg Hater recognised I had some sort of talent. Uh, and they got me doing match reporting for them. And eventually, about 85, sometime like that, uh, I was handed over, if you like, uh, on Hater's behalf to the Sunday people. Right. I began doing a byline match report, but via Hater's. You know, haters were paid, and then haters paid me. But I, I, I began doing a byline match report for the people, um, and from that I ended up getting a staff job at the people. First of all, as a sub, a sub editor on the inside. Um, then I went to the Evening Standard for a bit as a sub editor, and then I went back uh, on the road as a reporter uh, to the people in 1990. Yes, so. Um, that was my first staff reporting job, if you like, in okay. national newspapers. Yeah. In those early days, John, I mean, I know these kind of... And this is very, as I've suggested, right at the outset in the intro, a very kind of informal, great chat with a real sports person which I really, really delight in, and I don't have any shame or embarrassment. In fact, I'm, you know, flaunting that almost, because it's so good to be able to talk to, as Graham Souness, I think, would say, a proper football man. And I think one of the things for me is, what kind of lessons, because we're going to kind of segue into other things as the interview unfolds it, particularly maybe for aspiring sports students, etc. But what kind of things did you feel you really learnt from those early days to take you on to some of these next stages that we're going to talk about in a bit. I think really it was just being immersed in it. You yeah. know, it's a vocational job, um, and you spend all your life and time doing it, thinking about it, assessing it, worrying about it, whatever. Um, and you, you just gradually got soaked in the ways of um, sports writing, sports reporting, and, and, and national newspaper life, basically. You know, whether it was... Uh, chasing people around or doing stuff up against deadlines or, you know, digging things out for yourself or being in the pub or whatever. It was just, it was it was a way of life, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, I think a little bit of that has been lost um, because the newspapers certainly don't encourage it anymore and, you know, I mean, you know, some of them aren't uh, supporting journalists um, financially in being on the road like they used to either, you know. So, um but in, in, in terms of what you become, it's just a, a gradual process of immersion and watching and learning and being with older, more experienced people, drinking with them, talking with them, working with them, um, being on the road with them, and then you gradually you gradually emerge as what you are. You know, I mean, you, you, that's not going to happen if you've got no talent and you've got no eye for things. Great you point. Know, yeah. You know, but for those for those who have those those things within them, then the then that sort of immersion in national newspaper life will, will bring that out in you. I mean, I think, John, that, that to my audience, that to the kind of things I'm involved is is almost magic. It's gold dust, really, because as the interview started and where I was going to with you on some of your comments there, you've got to be involved. You've got to feel that passion, you know, and that collective, that kind of, it's almost kind of we're all in it together and the kind of team harmony that was obviously developed at a very early stage within some of those great people that you've mentioned, the other luminaries like yourself who've been and develop very strong and you've all changed as well and adapted to some of the um, the developments within all of the communications industry and media what did you do once once you left the people then john well i was at the people for eight years yeah. 
And then I went to the Daily Mirror as uh, I was sort of Harry Harris, the f- football number two, <laughs> Harry Harris. Uh, um, and sort of Harry, uh, it's take a big match night. Harry was the football correspondent, so um, he would do the match report and I would do the sort of more, what's the word, written, colour, analytical yep. sort of opinion piece that would go with it, which we sort of, did, you know, which became... Uh, a part of things sort of from the mid nineties onwards, really. You know, the, what, what we call the colour piece. You know, yeah. that was, wasn't always the case. But if I could think of how the whole sort of hierarchy was, I mean, what Harry was was an absolutely fabulous story getter, um, as opposed to um, an analyzer and a writer. Yeah. If you like. I guess we sort of um, complemented each other uh, in that way. Um, and at the same time, I was also the boxing correspondent as well, which was a great time to be the boxing man. I'd been the boxing man at the people as well. And that was, I, I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be involved in the whole era of uh, the Lennox Lewis, uh, Mike wow. Tyson, the Holyfield. And yeah. really sort of um, four-way tussle, you know. Um, and uh, so I was often in America and elsewhere. Um Covering, you know, it wasn't just when Lennox was fighting, but because all their careers impinged upon each other. Yeah. In those days, newspapers were happy to finance you to go to the Holyfield fight because it had a bearing on 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 Lewis's career and, and so on, you know. Um, and that led on through Prince Nazim Hamed and then Ricky Hatton and people like that, all the way up to Anthony Joshua. Now, in fact, and wow. all that so I had, I, I had, you know, I was very fortunate. I had sort of carved out a pretty. Um, pretty nice niche you know as the football number two I was involved at the World Cup and the Euros and all the big football nights and on all the big football stories um, and then I was off you know learn, learning a lot about different ways of journalism and about American journalism about how, how people operate in America you know when, when I was in Las Vegas and New York and places like that you know with, um, yeah. with, with the sort of um, some of the big name writers from the US papers so it was a, you know it was a it was a grand old time, basically, yeah. I mean, John, what you've also done nicely, and uh, I wouldn't expect anything less from a great journalist in sport, is that you've kind of moved it beautifully onto the kind of next phases of our conversation here. And some of the changes, I mean, some would say the changes have been seismic. I kind of think the changes have been gradual and they would naturally evolve. But at this time, and perhaps not quite where we're at now, but the kind of new phase of what a sports journalist has to do and the involvement of the internet and maybe some more developments what do you think have been the major changes for reporting on and commenting on and maybe what a sports journalist does and maybe kind of um, appraise that if you like on some of the jobs that you've had from uh, your mirror days to where you're at now yeah, well, I'll, give, I'll, give you, I'll use boxing as an example okay. because, uh, yeah. you know, I was in the, in the US and elsewhere uh, a hell of a lot, and um, you know we we well, I wouldn't say we lived well. You know, you're you're away from home a hell of a lot doing this job. You're away from your family and your kids and stuff yeah. like that. And um, in my in my view, your organisation is sort of entitled to look after you properly um, when you're when you're away from home so much. But there was also another element to that. You know, if I if I'm the boxing correspondent of of a, of a national newspaper, or later when I was the chief sports writer at the Daily Express then you, you, you're a certain figure for the newspaper, you know. So yeah. if you're in 
Las Vegas or New York, and at the New York Times and the Washington Post are there, and all the boxing luminaries like Don King or whatever. Then you've got to, you know, you've got to represent the paper. You've got to, you've got to eat and drink in certain places. You know, you've got to be out and about. You know, um, and that costs money. You know, and um, yeah. papers used to be happy to uh, to support that. Um, they still are for some people nowadays, but all they, you know, they are. They, they, you know, the, the, the barriers have come down, basically. Okay. You know, and, and I hear of, uh, you know, without mentioning any names, and that, I hear of people being sent to Las Vegas on 20 quid a day expenses, and, you know, it's scandalous, basically. Right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you can't, uh, you, can barely, you can barely buy a glass of wine for that in Las Vegas, you know, let alone feed yourself just on a basic subsistence level. Right. And to be honest, you know, if you're a journalist there representing a, a, a major... British institution like a national newspaper, then you should you, you should be able to you know reflect that you know that's going to get you the stories that's going to get you the interview that's going to get you the ear of people that's how you're going to pick up on all the gossip and opinions and that's how you know all the stuff that then moulds together when you sit down up in the hotel room to to write your piece you know John um, can I also hear maybe just ask you was there a point I mean it's probably a very difficult almost question to answer, but was there a point, because if I took everything through here, you know, uh, sorry, newspapers are failing, maybe, or are folding, or are starting to lose some of the veneer as first point of reference for your sports news, your sports comments, etc. Was there a point, you know, at that time or subsequently, when you kind of felt the different platforms now where whatever you got from your trip or your um, kind of activity within whatever sport you were covering, the platform that you actually broadcast it on or put it out on was not necessarily going to be newsprint. Did you detect that change or what kind of changes took place for you personally? Journalists on the road often are, you know, they're so busy doing the job that uh, sort of the, the landscape around them uh, doesn't register okay. at all times. So, I mean, I would argue that for whatever people say uh, about uh, platforms, and that, it's the national newspapers which are still the major... Okay. Uh, suppliers of news, opinion, reports, everything. It's just that uh, they're consumed more via a different platform now. You know, there's no way that small football niche websites, you know, they come and go or whatever. They can't compete with the Daily Mail or the Telegraph all the time. You know, um, and the, you know, those newspapers are still providing massive global coverage. Um, you know, with top name writers and top, they're just delivering it in a, in a different okay. way. You know, uh, yeah. and to be fair as well, we still sell uh, an inordinate amount of, of of newspapers in this country as well compared to elsewhere. But um, the change, you know, the change came about gradually. I don't think anybody really could define a point when when there was a tipping point because because nobody quite knew what to make of it. It was all so new. I mean, yeah. the whole newspaper industry has struggled, really, to, to work out and get it get to, get to grips with what's actually happened, and still is, you know. So, it's again, it's just been a process of immersion, really, you know. But I, I, I'd argue very strongly that, uh, you know, a fan's um, website or a, a club's own Twitter feed or whatever cannot match the Times or the Daily Mail for... The breadth of opinion and news and, and everything, you know. I mean, th there are going to be changes there, and the football clubs, the big football clubs, are going to seize hold of more of the media, certainly, you know. Um, perhaps we come on to that in a little while. Yeah, I mean, uh, John, I, 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 it's so, so refreshing, and I totally agree with you. Point of reference, first point, 
you know, the written word, the, 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 the depth of expertise analysis and all those things. And, you know, you've, you, you've mentioned those and I want you to champion them. And, you know, part of the interview today is, is actually to, you know, exalt that. And it's really, really refreshing. But it, it kind of also uh, nicely comes on to, to maybe another point, because... I always look at the news, I look at the newspaper probably first, I go back to it, it's retained, and yeah, and I cover lots and lots of other things, as you've rightly said. But is there a case now as well, um, I remember seeing you on the Sunday Supplement, you know, and I'd obviously come across you in, in other ways, and it's kind of spawned, or whatever the word is here, it's the, the immersion and the involvement as kind of, is there such a thing as a celebrity sports journalist, for example, and what do you think they are now offering, and, and maybe some of the, these new platforms, in complementing, obviously, the newsprint, are actually offering us as readers, us as audiences, us as listeners? Well, I think there always have been names Sports writers, yeah. uh, you know, they probably people like Henry Winter and Martin Samuel have have higher profiles now because you know there are you know there are more outlets for for, for us to be yeah. seen and heard on as well. You know, I mean, it, it's, you're sort of you know, television has a magic all of its own, far beyond the power of newspapers. And you know, uh, for years and years, you know, where, you know, if I'm stopped in the pub or the street or the supermarket or whatever, people talk far more about having seen you on TV than yeah. uh, anything you've written in the paper. That's just, that's the way of the world. That's the, you know, the endless magic of television, you know. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, again, there are, you know, we're on the radio and the TV much more. Uh, we're online much more. So, so yes, there are, you know, there are celebrity sports journalists. If you like. There are, you know, there are ex-players and that on one hand who have signed up, and that's always been the case. But people like Henry and Martin and Oliver Holt and stuff have, have, have very big profiles these days. Yeah. Do you think that that, John, adds to their kudos, their expertise? Are, are, are they able, you know, the value that perhaps people always put on, you know, what they say is, is, is what is true, what is needed to believe? I mean, I'm going into some grey areas here and maybe some sensitive areas and, and, and obviously journalistic licence here and everything else. But just a comment there that maybe is, is the need to have two-way engagement uh, still you know, necessary, because sometimes I think it's not always as easy for, you know, readers' comments, for example, in a newspaper. Do you still get the same kind of response if I went out there and said, Henry, I disagree with you, or Mr. Samuels, I don't think you're right there. It's not necessarily as easy for me as a, as a, a reader or a, a, a social media advocate to actually get the same kind of engagement or response. Do you have kind of thoughts on that at all, John? Yeah. I mean, I think that no journalist minds people saying we think you're wrong or whatever like that, especially if you're a, a columnist and an opinion former or whatever. You know, that's what you're there for. You Brilliant. Know, yeah. you, know, you get this oddity where you write a column and people say, well, that's your opinion. And you say, oh, yes, that's, that's the whole it's precise purpose of a column, to express my opinion. But it, 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 it's, it, it, because sport is partisan, the, the, normal, the normal sort of rules if you like, of journalism don't apply to this because because the majority of people, unfortunately, consuming sports journalism do so from a very uh, sort of tribal, Correct. partisan point yeah. of view. Uh, and in most cases, they don't, they're, not, they're not there with a great willingness to grasp 
the nuances of any argument or that sort of thing. They just want their own prejudices and beliefs reinforced, basically, you know. Um, and that's, yeah, that's true of all journalism to a certain extent. You know, if you're a Labour Party supporter, you know, that's why, yeah. you know, you, you read the Daily Mirror or whatever, you know. But uh, it's particularly true in sport, and it's become particularly more entrenched as there is more access for people to comment upon stories online and stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's this extraordinary belief among what seems to be thousands and thousands of supporters that there are, that there are agendas at work that, that Martin Tyler, if you like, of Sky TV, is biased against Manchester, Manchester United because he praises the way Liverpool scored a goal or, or that the press have some sort of anti-Chelsea or anti-Newcastle or anti-Liverpool agenda or whatever. I mean, I'm always baffled as to how they imagine this agenda is set, as if there's some sort of uh, weekly meeting of all the national newspapers and all the journalists where they decide what the agenda's going to be. You will know, Alan, as, as well as anyone, newspapers and news is a much more haphazard, rough-and-tumble, instant business than that. And, you know, even if there were <laughs> to have agendas... Uh, there wouldn't be time to set them. You know, what there is is news, a reaction to it, and different people's opinion to it, you know. Um, but I'm afraid people do seem to be becoming more and more partisan in their responses to 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 what's, you know, uh, what's reported and, and what sort of opinions are given, more, rather than, you know, accepting them as part of of the rough and tumble of, of following sport. Yeah. John, you know, I mean, I could pause here and the silence would say everything because the silence would show the respect and the fact that, you know, conversation is about talking, telling, etc. But it's also about listening, respecting and, and developing it. And my view of what I do on my radio show, on my online, on lots of the other things, and the fact that we're having this great interview today is, is testimony to that. So... I'd, I'd really now like, you know, and I'm going to continue the interview for some time now because I think there's a couple of other really developing points uh, that I'd like to maybe ask your opinion of or, or, or get a view. It's probably the kind of question that's sometimes asked at the end, if I'm a great, you know, if, if I've been a great uh, sports person, someone uh, as great footballer, someone will obviously ask them, what was the best goal you ever scored, etc., etc. Talking about interviews that you've done, John, over the years, are there any really, that you would stand out and say, that was, you know, a defining interview for me as a sports journalist, the scoop, or the, the best one that you ever did in terms of, and maybe if you want to, and I'll leave this a little bit open, maybe some of those that you wouldn't want to talk about too much, or maybe just give an insight into something like that. It's hard to pick that out, but I do recall once, uh, Muhammad Ali, before he was, uh, uh, Cassius Clay. Or victim to his illness too. Yeah, much. okay. Yeah. For a function or something. And he, he, he visited the WH Smiths um, across from the, uh, the mirror offices in Holborn. And uh, he then did some function afterwards. Um, and I went away and wrote a piece about him. And, and you know, there was a period was when Piers Morgan was editor of the, of the mirror. And I'd, he'd gone there with an idea and I'd been taken into there because they were trying to get back to some of the old values of, of the mirror when it was it was a red top and it was it was a tabloid but it was an intelligent tabloid you know you know okay. sort of, the, 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 of John Pilger sort of idea that they had you know so I was able to write quite analytical and, and deep pieces um, 
in those days for the Mirror, and I can't even recall what the tenor of the piece was, but I remember going in the next day and being told that Ali himself had rung the office. Um, <laughs> then I speak to me. <laughs> uh, because, uh, to thank me and praise me for the Fantastic. piece. Fantastic. Uh, in the way of newspapers, nobody thought, oh yeah, yeah we'll give you his mobile number. Uh, <laughs> so I never, it never actually happened, but um, yeah. you know, I've always sort of... Uh, treasured and polished that story uh, absolutely there are hundreds and hundreds yeah. of, I'll, you know, I'll never forget spending a very very long raucous boozy night with Joe Strummer at the Clash wow yes because he happened to be playing there um, uh, in the same week as the uh, the rematch between uh Lewis and Amanda Holyfield. I mean, John, I've got to come in because, again, this is very much a conversational piece as I've kind of stressed and my audience and people who know me and the listeners and, and lots of the other things I do. You know, that's what's great about sport. You know, I've just entertained a lot of sports students from Florida and I've been over there and you talked about America. And, you know, sport is, yes, what it is, but it's business, it's entertainment, it links with society, it links with 8 to 80. You know, it's front and back page news. We we, we love the, the kind of involvement with you know, stars and music and everything. So I think you've related some great stories there. A couple of quick questions I also want to put into you now, John, because one of the reasons I not only asked you on the show, but it was kind of a recent trigger, if you like, or a, 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 a recent touch point to, to have this conversation, was some of the recent articles that you've written uh, for the Evening Standard and, and, and for online consumption, maybe a theme developing football meltdown finance um you know too much of the adverse publicity associated with it some might say the beautiful game is becoming a not the ugly game but there's some malaise there what are your views and what what, what have you written about along those themes if you like john well i think in recent weeks uh, i think there's been a discernible sort of uh I guess during the period of the most recent transfer window, yeah. there's there's been a discernible sh schism, if you like, yeah. uh, in what you might call the big six. You know, um, it strikes me that the financial might of Manchester City and Manchester United is allowing them to begin pulling away even from Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs, and Liverpool. Let, let alone the rest. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Yes, who spent on the same scale um, and without much success this season. <laughs> I mean, when when you have City uh, prepared to sign a defender like the lad they signed from Spain for fifty-seven million pounds, uh, who looks a great player to be honest, mm. uh, but also to contemplate spending the same amount on Riyad Mahrez to cover for an injury, uh, um, you know, midway through the season. And then when you've got United backed by the, uh, the the hugely increased financial power that they've been given by, ironically, by the Glazer takeover, then I think that they're, they're showing that a the level of wealth that they have would be a willingness to use it. And I just don't see that Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs, or Liverpool are ever going to be willing to get involved, yep. or people possibly either, in the same sort of uh, in, a, in a sort of arms race that could be promoted by this. You know, I'm full of admiration for Pep Guardiola. Um, he's, you know, he's got a way of playing, and I, for one, was sceptical that he'd ever be able to instill it uh, into a team playing in England, simply because of the physical demands of yep. the game here. You know? I mean, what he does 
you know, it's, it's instilled so deeply on the training pitch, and that may sound a bit obvious, but you know, it, you know, that's 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 at the core of the philosophy. But you know, players here play so often, the game is so much more physical. There's so more injuries to deal with. There's the weather to deal with. You know, it's it's windier here, you know, than elsewhere. You know, but he seems to have overcome all that, and I'm, I'm full of admiration for. Agreed. Yeah. But at the same time, I would argue that. You can ins- you can make that happen on the training ground, and you can create that on the training pitch if you've got so many players of the level of quality that he has. So on one hand, it, you know there is his his philosophy, his genius at work, but on the other hand, it, it, it is facilitated by the massive wealth behind City. And like, you can't blame him. I mean, what's he supposed to do? Say, no, I don't want to sign all these players, or yeah. I think we'll fit perfectly into my system. You know, his job is to is to win things for Manchester City, isn't it? You know, yeah. and then at the same time you've got United, and I mean it's a huge irony given the, um, the the justifiable fears and protests that took place around the Glazer takeover. Um, the irony now is that they look like Manchester United look like the only team capable of matching City's financial might simply because of the way that the Glazers have. Um, Capitalised on on the marketability and, and, and corporate sponsorship potential of United, which they identified wasn't being you know exploited nearly as much as it could have been. They've proven that case by you know they you know they get mocked on that for having noodle partners in Southeast Asia or whatever. But it's you know it's 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 increased their income dramatically and. They have proven over the last two or three years that they're willing to spend it on the team as well. Because you know? I guess you know that's part of the business equation for them, isn't it? You yeah, know, I, I mean, the, John. I, I mean, I, you've made some absolutely, you know, uh, very valid points. The points that need making and stressing, and you're absolutely spot on. And it's balanced, or it's countenanced, or you can kind of draw comparisons, or you can perhaps put an alternative view in there. Uh, in some way but you know as a sports fan it's all down to what happens on the pitch and you know and fans are tribal as you referred to earlier uh, fans will forgive anything or ignore everything you know at the expense of as long as we've got the three points and it justifies it etc but do you think as I think you've suggested in your articles because clubs my old club Liverpool Blackburn Rovers you know and uh, forget the guy's name when Kenny was manager there and the Jack uh, put all the money in. It's always been there, so there's always been a kind of differential. But do you think it's just the sheer scale now? Sunderland, in the, you know, an Arsenal, the Bank of England club in the 30s or whatever. Okay. You know, it's, it's always been in the way. Yeah. But uh, it's obviously, it's on a global scale now. And also, you know, we're not just talking about uh, the local bank manager running the club and financing it. We're talking about the sovereign wealth fund yeah. of Abu Dhabi, you know, which is... One of the most almighty forces on earth, basically. You know, I mean, it, you know, it, it goes. You know, this is this is all about the exercise of what they call soft power, isn't it? You Absolutely. Know, yeah. Not, not yeah. Had not bought Manchester City because that was their lifelong ambition, and they, yeah. you know, uh, and they really always cherished a dream to regenerate East Manchester. There's a far greater 
global political forces driving this, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, and, and absolutely. And this soft power, you know, China, you know, when they bought um, Tevez and they've tried others and people go and be... So it's not been quite successful. Maybe India uh, will do the same as they're kind of doing in cricket and, and some of the transference or transferability almost of this. But I want to ask... It's not a final question, because I think there's a few more other things that we can discuss, uh, John, before we close the interview. But in terms of the fan, you know, and some of the fans demand or self-entitlement, the ITKs, as they're affectionately known sometimes, you know, they demand too much. But a lot of fans and a lot of fans groups have been very, very effective. The fans' voice and, and content creation from them. Do you think owners and football clubs and, and, and all the things, maybe journalists, uh, uh, owners of newspapers, etc., do they really countenance it? Do they really accept it? Do they really want fans, you know, being a vital voice in all of this kind of stakeholder I, investment. I that's the case at all. Funny enough, just today, David Sullivan has been quoted as saying that the, uh, the current unrest uh, among West Ham supporters uh, uh, will mean nothing to him, basically. Okay. Uh, and there are various reasons behind that unrest, which are different from the other thing I think you're referring to. I think that the biggest clubs, not just in England, but across Europe and elsewhere, when, when they talk about we want fan engagement and that, what they're talking about is they want social media consumption um, for the, you know, because uh, that, you know, obviously uh, is good for their corporate deals and yeah. their sponsors and their backers and their marketeers as well, you know. <laughs> they're not interested in listening to uh, the views and opinions uh, of, of fans about anything fundamental. Club badges, colours maybe, stuff like that, you know, uh, but, but this is this is massive global corporate business, you know. And I personally, if I ran a massive global corporate business, I wouldn't want uh, a man on the street telling me how to run it either. Basically, you know, yeah. um, it's not the way of the world, is it? You know, um, we're going to enter, a, you know, an era when 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 this becomes uh, even more powerful in football. Within my view, I mean, if you go into any football ground press uh, box these days, the the most numerous presents uh, are the um, mainly youngish uh, members of each club's own sort of uh, media outfit. You know, yeah. the people who provide their Twitter feed and their Facebook page and their match reports and stuff like that, um, you know, throughout the game and throughout the week. And they always have far more representatives there than any newspaper or TV station or, or elsewhere. I think, to my view, especially a game with the bigger clubs, Things are going to move further and further that way because, because you know, I, I saw a journalist the other day asking a question as to why why um, Manchester City didn't hold a press conference when uh, when the lad arrived from from Spain, the defender. His, his name has gone from me. You know, uh, well, what they what they did was they they staged an interview for their own television station. Yeah, goes out across all their social media forms. Uh, that's you know that that that's getting, you know, them subscribers themselves, if you like. It's also um, doing the exact job that their sponsors and their, the people associated with them in marketing want, want to do, and they're controlling it themselves, you know. And I think very soon we're going to come to a point where, um, if you like, the match report or whatever that these, that these outlets provide is going to... On a global scale, probably be more widely consumed than anything than, than even the most powerful national newspaper might be able to uh, 
to, to supply. And I, I mean, I'll tell you for why. I mean, people, I've had this discussion with people often, and, and they say to me, well, who wants to read, you know, uh, a club's own official match report uh, of its own match? It, you know, it can't possibly be uh, unbiased or, or objective or whatever. And I think people are forgetting that, you know, that, that may be the case here in Britain, but these big clubs are looking on a global scale, particularly to the Far East, uh, you know, where where this is all consumed differently. You know, people are not re- people don't have so much of a, a view about unbiased and unpartisan reporting. They actively want to be associated with the output of the club. They, that's part of what supporting the club is. And a lot of these places don't really have a tradition of sort of a free, outspoken press or, or any sort of democratic tradition either, so that you know, that, that, that isn't part of the roots of how they follow football you know, I mean, Liverpool's a great case in point, they're massively followed throughout the Far East, and people, you know, want to be associated with their with their website and with their, their own output and I can only see that leading to perhaps in ten years, the end of the weekly manager's press conference with uh, with the newspapers and stuff and just a sort of, a, um a TV message, you know, from the manager and selected players broadcast on, on the club's own uh, various platforms and consumed in its hundreds of thousands and millions across the planet. I mean, John, what you've done here, and sadly like all great interviews, and this has been fantastic for me, great insights and etc, etc. We're almost certainly going to have to have a John Dillon 2 at some point. But I agree with you. I mean, the title of my show, uh, and for obvious reasons maybe, has, has been called The Future of Sport, and I'm a big advocate of global. A lot of my new students and a lot of the platforms and a lot of the context that we have and the ability to, 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 to take it across different worlds and different audiences is, is fantastic. But at the same time, I think, you know, if we use Liverpool is a great example. You know, there are many fans out there who are talking about, you know, our owners' net spend, they haven't spent enough money. And we'll get into all of those. And I don't want to really, I'm going to part that, whatever. But I do recall that, you know, when Jicks, uh, when Hicks and Gillette came, you know, the fact that they talked about franchise when, you know, they should have been talking about being guardians of the football club. And there is always a way that the fan's voice can be heard. And, you know, when they infamously put out on a website, you know, talking about the fans as customers. I mean, I'm a marketer, and but but that was essentially not only touched a nerve, but was perhaps a realisation that they they need to find balance with all of the factors. So, is there a is there a master plan? Do you think? Where do you see future sports journalists developing their skill set? And maybe what advice, John, would you give anyone who wants to come into the business today? Well, I mean, I, this is one that baffles me a bit. I mean, a lot of the advice given to young people coming out of uh, uh, journalism courses and that by many people is, look, you know, forget the media as such and get yourself involved with a football club or a, or a sporting organisation and be a part of their sort of media setup because that's the uh, that's that's you know that's a growing market and uh, perhaps the, the the more mainstream media isn't. So you know. Um, I think, you know, we're already seeing this. Uh, those news outlets which are prepared to invest uh, in journalism uh, will maintain their own power and maintain uh, sort of main journalists working for them. I think their influence is less and less uh, because, I mean, if I go back to 
even even not that far back really, 2003 when I began as chief sports writer and columnist at the Daily Express, well, there were nine of us writing columns. Wow. Know, uh, yeah. The internet thing hadn't really taken off, so there were nine national opinions, if you like. You know, yeah. Now there are 20 million every day. <laughs> I, I mean, I think if we had to find a point to stop on, John, rightly or wrongly, that's almost kind of like the, the beautiful uh, closing point uh, to be continued. Or make sure you tune in for the next uh, uh, for the next edition. John, it's been great chatting to you today. Just give us a final shout out to anybody who wants to get in touch with uh, with with you, John, and we'll certainly connect again very very soon. So just finally, uh, John, because I think we kind of had a little technical issue there, but just as a final comment, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at uh, uh, the Evening Standard at the moment and how people can contact you and so we can have a further discussion and um, we, we can develop some of the issues here. Well, look, I was made redundant by the Daily Express three years ago. Uh, you know, they no longer felt the need to have a... Um, Chief sports writer. Um, in fact, they've uh, what you could more or less describe as a skeleton staff of uh, sports reporters now, and that's it. But that, that's a, a newspaper group that has gone down one route, you know, the different routes of the yeah. Daily Mail and the Times and stuff. You know, it's 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 all been about cost cutting at the Express Group rather than uh, investment in journalism. So now, you know, I'm a freelance. Um, I write a column three or four times a week for the Standard website and. I do some stuff, a bit of boxing, a bit of football for the paper. Uh, I do stuff for the Sun, do talk sports. Um, uh, often their press pass show, uh, which uh, I believe has just recently been resurrected and often do a newspaper review for them. And I'm just sort of um, carrying on in that way, basically. You know, I mean, the Standard is a, uh, it's quite a success story, the Standard there. See, it was, you know, the, the decision to, to take the newspaper free was a, uh, in itself a revolutionary one in, uh, in, in industry terms. You know, we're talking about uh, where the industry's going, and yet it sort of revitalised the paper completely because now everybody sees it, you know, whereas um, the habit of buying it had, uh, had sort of died out. But now everybody picks one up at the tube station or in the cafe or whatever, wherever they're distributed. You know, there's a, there's a million of them go out every day, so... Um, and you know, and the website obviously is uh, it supports that and is supported by that as well. So you know, I'm, I'm, I like working to the standard. John, yeah, I'm, I'm really John. Sorry to, I'm really really pleased that we've finished on that very positive note because I think one of the things that has clearly come out of the interview and the conversation today is the emergence of obviously a, a new way of doing things, the new platforms. So keep in touch. We will definitely uh, push out anything that we can through all the channels that we've got, particularly in the area of online stuff, and, and, and continue to do the great work, particularly there uh, uh, on the standard. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today, John. It's been you a take care. Too, yeah. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. I'll give you a, 